Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of trying therapy, learn more at BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com. So today we have the great privilege of interviewing Simon Sebag Montfiore, who is many things. He is, though primarily an historian, he's written great works on Russia, on everything from uh, the era of Catherine the Great and Potemkin through to some wonderful books on Stalin. But he also wrote a very fundamental history of Jerusalem. He is from a Jewish family, very influential Jewish family in British history uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, and I think has also been in the last few weeks a very important commentator on events in Israel. So there are many things that we want to talk about. We want to talk about Israel-Gaza, we want to talk about Russia, but I wonder whether I could perhaps begin with a little bit of history and to try to get you to explain a little bit about what led up to this idea of Israel, the creation of a Jewish homeland, what part the British played in it, what the British thought they were doing, why they committed to this thing, and where this came from in the 19th century? That's a giant question. <laughs> and I think and I think one has to go away and write a book. I think one, I might go away and write a book about it. Um, I did write a book about it, though, which, is, which is the Jerusalem book. But perhaps we should just start by saying that one can't think of anything other at the moment than the nightmare we're going through in the Middle East, and one just can't deplore enough the images of civilians and children and women being killed in Gaza, just as we can't deplore enough the, the killing of civilians on October 7th in Israel. And you know, one always has to start by just saying, I just crave the moment when there is a Palestinian state next to an Israeli state, uh, when the occupation is over, when this dreadful Netanyahu government is gone. But also when Hamas is scattered and taken out, we pray out of the game in the, the political game in the Middle East. So I think one has to start from that point. But on the other hand, I believe that the history of Israel is an authentic one, just as the history of the Palestinians is. We've got two just causes, two just peoples, and we've got to find a way for them to live together. Slaughter is not the answer. 
So to answer Rory's point, to go back to the beginning, one has to start from the fact that the Jewish people in exile since 17 AD have always longed to have a life in the Holy Land, to return to Jerusalem, to return to what later became Palestine. And that has been something they've worked on throughout history. There was a moment uh, in the 17th century when Solomon the Magnificent and Selim the Grim, his son, were both backing Jewish settlement in the Middle East, in what is now Palestine. And there have been many such schemes throughout history. In the 19th century, many, many Jewish people started to, to dream that this was possible. And my ancestor, Moses Montefiore, is one of those people. He first went there in the 1820s. And in the 1860, he was one of the first to build a, a small suburb outside the walls of Jerusalem. At exactly the same time as the great Husseini family, the great Palestinian family, started to build an Arab suburb outside the walls of Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah. So, both those began at exactly the same time. Just again to remind listeners to sort of bring this in. So in the 19th century, the, the Jewish population of Palestine was pretty small and the Muslim population was much, much larger, maybe Correct. 10 times larger by the, the end of the 19th century. And the Christian population actually was relatively similar to the size of the Jewish population by the end of the 19th century. And many of those were Palestinian Arab Christians. But by the end of the 1880s, there was a Jewish majority in Jerusalem. And of course, this is long before World War One, World War II, yeah. the Holocaust, or anything so, else. So, from sort of eighteen hundred up to then, the Jewish population grows in Jerusalem, the city. Yes, but across the broader Palestinian region, eighteen ninety, maybe census suggests maybe forty three thousand Jews, four hundred thirty two thousand Muslims in that territory. Absolutely right. And of course, immigration was going to change that. And the immigration really started in the eighteen sixties, seventies, eighties, and so. Just a reminder of the fact that, like, when you look at Israelis today, there are many families that have been that have been living in there for close to two hundred years, um, which is many generations, which is quite long enough to count as indigenous. Even if you reject the whole of the ancient narrative that the Jews ruled and lived in what was then Judea for a thousand years before the birth of Christ, which by the way, all historians accept, except those with a very political bias, of course. So 1880s immigration starts from different places. Then in World War I, the British Empire is aspiring to take over the Ottoman Empire. The war on the Western Front is going very badly. And creative thinkers, including Winston Churchill and the British and French side, are looking for a way to break the central powers from the East, and also planning for the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which has ruled the Middle East since 1517, when Selim the Grim takes it. That's a great so, name. Yeah, Selim the Grim. Well, he did kill all his brothers and their children, and probably most of his own sons, except the chosen heir, Suleiman the Magnificent. So he, so he deserved his name. He was, he was Grim. He was grim, but he was also great. And it's worth remembering, by the way, it's good, it's good, I'm glad you asked about him, because from 1517 to 1918, the Ottomans, essentially the Turkish Empire, ruled the Arab world in its entirety. They threw out the Mamluks who'd ruled it before, and they built the walls in Jerusalem, which are now the walls of Jerusalem, which we always think is terribly ancient. They weren't. They were built by Suleiman Magnificent. Um, same time as Henry VIII, basically. And they ruled with increasing repression of the Arab population. So by World War I, Arabs are dreaming of throwing off 
the chains of the of Ottoman rule, and the Ottomans are getting increasingly fascistic and ultranationalist. And somewhere in this period, Lord Balfour in Britain puts out a declaration supporting a homeland for the Jewish people. Apart from the rights and wrongs of it, yeah. What were the British thinking about? What was in it for the British? What was their cunning plan? The British didn't have a cunning plan. The British, like many, many powers in, in many wars, were simply looking for different friends, different alliances, and promising different panaceas to those groups in order to win allies. Which allies were they hoping to win by, well, by promising a Jewish homeland? It started with um, in 1915 with the negotiations with Hussein of Mecca, a Hashemite prince descended from the Prophet Muhammad, and who they had ruled Mecca on and off since since the times of, the time of Saladin. They and the British were discussing the Hashemite family wanted to rule the entire Arab world, um, one family. And the British made an agreement with them that they would lead an Arab rebellion. This was all to do with Lawrence of Arabia as well. And this Arab rebellion would undermine the Ottomans in the East. But they were very careful not to promise anything too specific, such as Jerusalem. Why did the British think it was a smart move in this war to promise a homeland for the Jewish people? There were various reasons. One was that they were all biblically educated, people brought up in the tradition of Victorian evangelism. Lloyd George was really, the Balfour Declaration. Was he, the, was, he was the driver of it. He was the driver. It was, the Balfour Declaration is really the Lloyd George Declaration and should be. Uh, Balfour was the um, former prime minister who had been brought back as foreign secretary, in case that sounds familiar. And so that was one one part of it was a cultural one. And another part of it was the belief that the Jews had great influence in America and in Russia. So a way of getting the Americans on, on the side of the British during the war and keeping yes, them on the side? Yes, yeah. and also a way of keeping Russia in the war, because there were around 5 million Russian Jews at that time. How important do you think history is in the middle of a crisis like this, when a crisis like this erupts in the way that it's done. And interesting that, for example, you felt right from the outset of this interview, you had to set yourself in that current situation. Correct. But how important is history? How much should the current leaders who are trying to grapple with this know about the history? And how should they try to apply it to what they're trying to do now? Well, I think history is very important. But the, the last part of that answer um, and the most important is that people believed that Jewish national determination meant that they needed and deserved a return to their to their historic home. So that was the sort of biggest. I told you what the British wanted, but what the Jews wanted was that, and that was recognised by the British Empire. And that is the most important part of this: the ancient Jewish connection and love of and and homeland in the Holy Land. That was the key part of that British decision um, to back the Balfour Declaration, which was backed by the French government and also the US Congress at the same time, and then by the League of Nations. In terms of history, I mean, you may find this a surprise from a historian, but you can have too much history. And actually, what I think really matters is how people want to live now. And that's why I started with that declaration at the beginning of this conversation, because you can have way too much history. What really matters in Ukraine, um, in Russia, and and in and in the Middle East is how people want to live now for their families. But, but what lessons can be taken from history that could be usefully applied now? I mean, the key lessons that really need to be applied now are this: that you have two peoples with completely legitimate stories, narratives, histories, cultures, and connections to this land. 
And there is no point in denying either one of those histories today, because to deny those histories is to deny those people's right to live and flourish in freedom. Give us examples of people denying the histories on either side so that listeners can understand what you mean when people say well, denying when I was, histories. When I was researching my, my Jerusalem book, for example, and by the way, the mission of that book was exactly this. The whole point of the Jerusalem, the biography history book that I wrote was to show the histories of both peoples, to deny neither. That was my mission because without that, peace is impossible. And my dream is that of two states. So let me give you an example. I spoke to many of the top Palestinian professors of history, and they all helped me because I was writing the history of great Palestinian families and showing their histories over the last thousand years. And they would tell me in private, we can tell you, of course, there was a Jewish temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Uh, but in public, the Palestinian Authority's official position is there was no Jewish temple. The Jewish connection to the Holy Land is completely tenuous and invented in the 1890s by Zionists. So they would quite happily admit this in private. They said, but in public, we'd be killed if we, say, if we said it. So that's one narrative. So there's, yeah. a, there's a narrative from some parts of the Palestinian community saying, really, there were very, very few Jews in Palestine. They didn't have much of a presence. And, and this leads into something you've been very worried about recently, which we'll get onto, which yeah. is your worries about stories about settler colonialism. Yeah. And then presumably on the other side is an Israeli narrative which downplays the significance of the Palestinians as a people and the type of state they had and how much of a presence they had. Yeah, well, just to finish, just to give you another part of that. Another part of this denial of the Jewish history, which I'm not going to dwell on because I'm dying to get onto the other one too, because I despise that just as much. But the sort of settler colonial narrative is a huge denial of modern Jewish history because it claims, for example, that uh, it imposes on this story a whiteness narrative. And I'm going to interrupt for a second. So for, again, for listeners, this is very, very common, particularly in university campuses, particularly in the United States, where recently we've seen over the last few weeks, the projection of a lot of narrative around race, where Jews are depicted as whites, where Palestinians are depicted as black adjacent, where the conflict is interpreted through a lens of settler colonialism, right? Which you think delegitimizes well, it delegitimizes, it dehumanizes the Israelis completely in all sorts of ways. We might come to that, the details of that in a minute, but just for this denial of history point, something like approaching 60%, but certainly over 50% of Israelis are Mizrahim who are descended from black or brown peoples in the Middle East. They are indigenous to the Middle East. They come from Iraq, from Persia, from Yemen, from Ethiopia, from Morocco, like my own family comes from Morocco, the sea bag. So, so they are far from that white narrative. It's just completely ignorant. On the other side, ultra-nationalists in the Netanyahu government, which I loathe, by the way, and the ultra-right ultra nationalists on the Israeli side claim that Palestinians don't exist, that there's no history of Palestinians ruling themselves, which is an anathema to me. And we must also deny that. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Jerusalem, the biography, was to show how the Palestinian connection is is an ancient one as well. You said there that you loathe the Netanyahu government uh, and presumably particularly those extremist elements on, on the hard right, but have the events of October 7th made you loathe them less or differently? It's a good question. They haven't. I mean, I find them, I, find, I found them appalling from the moment they were, they were elected. I've always found the Netanyahu approach to this a deep, deep mistake from the time he came to power 
In the 90s, he undermined the two-state solution in which he was aided, weirdly, um, and I'm not making an equivalence between the two, by Hamas. I mean, Hamas's entire campaign has been to destroy a two-state solution or any hope of a compromise because they want a Jew-free, all-Arab caliphate in the Holy Land, which would involve the slaughter of all the Jews there, as we've seen on October the 7th. Can I challenge on that, actually? Yeah. It's very interesting because... Hamas says very different things on this. Their official line, I believe, is that they want an Arab majority state in which Jews would be welcome to remain. So they would say what they deny is the idea of a Jewish homeland. They see it as a Palestinian state from the river to the sea. They would deny that their objective is to try to murder every Israeli. I agree what happened October 7th was completely horrifying. Isn't that the stated objective of Hamas leadership? And, and in, in other words, it's actually, it's, it often appears when they talk that it's exactly the shadow of what people like Smotrich are saying. In both cases, they're saying, we should be controlling the state. The others are welcome to remain if they wish to cooperate with our form of government. And if not, they can leave. But they're both talking about creating a state effectively from the river to the sea. Well, I think from the river to the sea is one of those... I, I'm not as obsessed with that phrase as some people are. I think it's all to do with the context, rather like the famous green octopus, which could be a What's children's... The green octopus? Well, the, the famous green octopus could be a children's toy, but it's also become a symbol of the international Jewish conspiracy. I so, I mean, if it's in a child's room and they're playing with it, I'm not, I'm not claiming it's a, it's a subliminal anti-Semitic symbol. But from the river to the sea, when quoted by Hamas, and Hamas supporters clearly means the ethnic cleansing of the Holy Land of, of its Jewish population. And much of the celebrations among some well-intentioned, but mostly, I would suggest, malignant actors in universities on our streets. When they say from the, from the river to sea, they are very clear what they mean. because they or, are they, or they don't know. That's why I was a little surprised at your answer earlier. Yeah. I mean, that I, history. Yeah, because, for example, I read recently that only 2% of British schools learn about the history of the Middle East. Yeah. I mean- now, what, That doesn't- exactly help no. current understanding, no. does it? But mind you, we always blame everything on the fact that there's, you know, they didn't learn about this in school, they didn't learn about the empire, they didn't learn about the Middle East. We don't learn anything in school. You know, none of these things are taught. It's not, a great, it's not always a great crime. It's just, a, just a, an indictment of the fact that history is very low on the list. But I think the point is that if you, if you look at the statements of Khalid Mishal, um, Hamad, and other Hamas leaders since October the clear. 7th, Rory, They've been absolutely specific that they wish to annihilate Israel. They've said so. They would do October the 7th over and over again. Yes, over the last 30 years, um, Hamas have played all sorts of games with the West, um, with Western bien-pensant sympathizers, um, telling them that they were going to recognize 67 borders, telling them that they might do this, they might do that. But they have now spoken pretty clearly on October and, the 7th. And is, is it radically different to the IRA who also completely refused to recognise the existence of the British state in Northern Ireland and would have argued that Ireland needed to be free from sea to sea. I think that British people always want to um, use the Irish parallel because we did rather well in the end in making peace there, which, which we're very proud of quite rightly. Thank you, Alistair, and your, and your administration. But the real parallel, I think, which is much more important, is that you never can convince everybody. There are always extremists left. And we will never convince the ultra-ultras in, in, in the Palestinian movement that Israel sh should exist in any form. But I think the real answer is that, let's just go back to the beginning again. Many modern nation states are created by partitions. Partition is not necessarily an evil thing. 
the real success in Ireland was when we get was was the partition in 1921-1922 which created an Irish state and a Protestant province and many many modern countries India and Pakistan is you know the other big example but also Greece and Turkey were created in partitions that created nation states that I'm afraid were accompanied by huge ethnic violence and out of that came states that we regard as entirely legitimate and now part of the modern world Israel is simply one of those states okay Simon Rory let's just take a quick break and be back in a minute hola hello this call is being translated abuela listen to what my phone can do abuela escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer wow ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva wow now tell me about this new girlfriend huh tú sabes lo que dije you know what I said Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Can I ask you a little bit about you? You've got this amazing name. You've already mentioned one of your ancestors, Moses, which is another amazing name. Not the Moses, but a pretty significant Moses. Yeah. You had grandparents on your mother's side who fled the Russian Empire because of anti-Semitism, moved to Ireland, yes. if I'm right, and then moved from there as well because of anti-Semitism, and finally settled in, in Britain. Is that right? Yes. So that's the basic story. Yes. So... Does your kind of passion for history and your particular interest in Israel, Palestine, and Russia, does it come very simply from that family background? Yes, it does. It does very, very simply. I mean, the Russian history part of it comes from, they came from Russia in 1904, and they were escaping the Kishnev pogrom, which launched a sort of wave of pogroms. And pogroms comes from pogromit, from the Russian, which means to, to destroy, to lay waste. And so the Tsarist regime in Russia, the Romanovs, uh, had been increasingly repressive against the Jews. And in fact, Moses Montefiore, who was a friend with of Queen Victoria and Disraeli and Palmerston and all these people, went to see Nicholas I um, in Russia to try and persuade the Tsarist. So Tsar what's his to, relation to you? He Moses? is my great-great-great-uncle, something right, like that. Right. But also I should say that the sea bags came from Morocco. So I am a complete Jewish mixture of Sephardic and Ashkenazi not unlike the people in Israel, in fact, in that sense. You know, I'm very, I'm very typical of that. But when they arrived in Ireland in 1904, they were driven out of, out of Limerick in the famous Limerick pogrom, which is a sort of forgotten detail. But basically, they were welcomed in Britain. They loved Britain. And Britain has always been exceedingly tolerant. And, you know, my parents and grandparents loved Britain. 
Both Roy and I have spoken to Jewish friends who've, not all of them, but some of whom have, have said that they do feel very, very differently at the moment, including in Britain, that they, yeah. that they, they feel that their Jewishness is, has become a bit of a problem for them in a way that most of their lives they haven't. Are you feeling any of that? Yeah. I mean, it started in the Jeremy Corbyn years when, you know, when for the first, I, I had never been a sort of public Jewish person. I mean, I've always been very Jewish and proud of my Jewishness, but I'd never spoken out about being Jewish or regarded myself as a sort of Jewish historian. Um, I just wanted to be a historian. And when Corbyn was leader of the, of the Labour Party, and I, I, I really feared what would happen then. And that has continued now with these protests. Now, I'm not one of those people who think that these protests are hate marches. I'm perfectly aware that, you know, many, many, perhaps most of the people on these marches are protesting against the images they see from Gaza of children, of families hit by Israeli bombing. And against a government that you hate as well. And against a government that I hate. But I'm also completely clear, and so should we all be, that there is a minority, and I don't know how big that, but I suspect a rather large minority in these marches, who are celebrating Hamas, who are celebrating the killing of Jewish and Israeli civilians um, en masse, who are denying what happened on October the 7th. It's an odd paradox, isn't it? Because it was true with 9-11 too, that you have this sort of strange conspiracy theories going on, where on the one hand, and I found this often actually amongst people I met in Pakistan and Afghanistan and the Middle East, where you could both simultaneously deny that 9-11 had happened and celebrate it. Yes, that's exactly what we're having now, is that many of these people in these crowds are both denying that it, that it happened and also celebrating the killing and rape of civilian, the, the beheading of babies. Yes, and although even that's very complicated, isn't it? Because often what they're doing is celebrating the attack, but distancing themselves from atrocities. The weird thing is there that they're actually saving Hamas from themselves, because after all, the evidence of all this is not... It's not invented by some Jewish conspiracy. It's filmed by Hamas themselves on their GoPro cameras and um, on their smartphones and put up online by them. Have you personally ever been felt directly anti-Semitic abuse attack, verbal or otherwise? I have at different times. I have when I've been speaking um, in public. I've been accused many times of being part of a, an international Jewish conspiracy of some sort. For example... And um, that is an alarming um, conspiracy theory, uh, which is always the which you know I used to regard as the sign of a kind of half mad crank, but is now widely espoused by people who don't know the history. Which brings us back, Alistair, to the point: is like we really care about how people live and want to live now, and that means Palestinians living in a safe Palestine, Israelis being safe in a safe Israel next to each other somehow, and that's going to be very difficult. But in order to achieve that, we have to know the history. And the history is being violently misused and abused. Most of the people who are supporting Hamas and probably chanting from the river to the sea actually don't know the history of Israel and how it was created. And it also doesn't, doesn't reflect the Palestinian plight either. And that's why this new history theory, which Rory mentioned and which partially explained at the beginning of this conversation, is a disgraceful distortion and abuse of history. But it also rules out ever having a two-state solution. Can you tell us a bit about that then? What in the most optimistic scenario could a, could a two-state solution look like? Give listeners a bit of a sense of what some of the ingredients might be and what it would take to get there towards peace. Well, two of the basic things are extremely hard to achieve. 
One is Hamas has to be out of the picture and has to be scattered as a political power. At the same time, there needs to be an Israeli partner in peace too. And that means not having people like Netanyahu, Smotrich and Ben-Gavir anywhere near the process. But if there was an election in either of those places now, an election in Gaza right now, Hamas are going to win it. With this happening. They might do with this happening. And, and then that, Israel, yes. one of the reasons why people are maybe not pushing as hard to get rid of Netanyahu because of the worry that actually the guys who are even worse get in. I think it's more likely that some of the things Netanyahu has done, um, like the judicial reforms, which would, would have made Israel less democratic, have recreated a center that was va- had vanished from Israeli politics. And so that it's, it's quite possible... As we saw, I mean, it was only a year, one forgets so much has happened. It was only a year and a half ago. There was a centrist government in power in Israel with an Arab party as part of the coalition, which was a thing we all celebrated because Israeli Arabs, the vast majority of them, are citizens in Israel, have the vote, sit on the Supreme Court and actually want to live in in Israel. In fact, the leader of Hamas's family, Haniwa's family, are all very pro-Israeli Israeli Arabs. Um, fast forward then, back, back again. Two-state yeah. solution. How Two are we going to get there and what's involved? We need to have partners on both sides who are, are capable of that. We hope Netanyahu will be gone soon. We hope that Israel won't re-elect these ghastly messianic settler leaders again. And explain to listeners why settlements is a significant challenge for the two-state solution or it continuing to expand settlements. The majority of Israel, of which there are now 9 million Israelis, live in Israel proper behind the, in the, within the lines of the 1967 lines. And many of them have been there for many generations. So they are not settler colonialists. And r- reminding people, the 1967 lines are broadly speaking the edge of the Israeli state, as was inherited from the late 1940s before following the 1967 war. Correct. Israel expanded and took the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and Gaza. Yeah. So the majority of Israelis live within that original state, and they then do. the settlers. Tell us about the settlers. They, yeah. And so we're not talking about them at this point. At the same time, post-67, and sometimes victory can be a disaster for all everybody, even the victors. Post-67, messianic religious Israeli settlers began to settle in the West Bank. And their reason for doing so is they're saying this is where Abraham was buried, this is where Joseph was born, these are parts of traditional Israel, and they wanted to put settlements yes, and there. They, and they were traditional parts of Israel, but you can have too much history. And so they began to build settlements there and harass um, and undermine and drive out Palestinians who lived there. So they would build settlements, and then the Israeli army often would come in and protect those settlements, and, and suddenly Palestinians would find living next to them. Yes. A community of people with a pretty aggressive messianic. Yes. And the harassment, and one has to call this out, the harassment post-October the 7th has been intensified in a way that is completely despicable. But the, but the harassment pre-October 7th was a pretty difficult thing. It was already pretty for bad. people to live with. It was already pretty bad. And there are figures of you know over 100 people have been killed in the year before, though some of those were terrorist attacks. Mm. And the trouble is, one of the things we should probably just mention is the danger of statistics in this whole affair. I mean, for example, the Western media completely accepts Hamas statistics for the number of civilians killed in Gaza, for example. So the settlers are pushing out, and they're doing so because from the point of view of these people who are calling messianic settlers, they're actually hoping that by putting their houses there, they're staking a claim to territory and that ultimately they will be able to reclaim their vision of a historic Israel. Correct. And the two-state solution demands that a substantial 
Palestinian state be created, most probably in the West Bank and in the rebuilt Gaza, we hope. And that means that 400,000 militant, messianic fanatics, the settlers in the West Bank, the Jewish settlers in the West Bank, will have to be many of them moved. That is not going to be an easy task. That rule will require the Israeli army to be involved, as it was when Israel, remember, does not occupy or did not occupy before October the 7th. The Israeli army and Israel had withdrawn from Gaza in 2005. And in that process, they had to remove fanatic Jewish settlers then, and they will have to do so again to create a Palestinian state, which is essential. Now, you wrote a very long piece recently on The Atlantic, uh, where you, you're quite angry about this whole kind of decolonizing settler argument that you felt was being run to dehumanize Israelis. But you ended it with this. You said, in the wider span of history, sometimes terrible events can shake fortified positions. Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin made peace after the Yom Kippur War. Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat made peace after the Intifada. The diabolical crimes of October 7 will never be forgotten, but perhaps in the years to come, after the scattering of Hamas, after Netanyahu is just a catastrophic memory, Israelis and Palestinians will draw the borders of their states tempered by 75 years in killing and stunned by one weekend's Hamas butchery into mutual recognition. There is no other way. But that feels so distant at the moment. I don't think I've ever felt it so distant. It does look really distant. The suffering, the trauma in Israel after October the 7th, and I only start with that because I'm just, that's what happened first. And that's what set in it this off chapter. in this chapter. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a long, not a longer problem. It goes back to 1948. And 19, the history of 1948 itself is completely distorted and misunderstood by the um, narrative of Israeli ethnic cleansing. But you're right, it will be distant. Terrible things have happened in Israel, and Israel is completely traumatized, by the way, and will be until every one of those 220 hostages are returned. Um, Israel will not be a normal place until that happens. Every Israeli is bleeding now. At the same time, the devastation the killing of, of civilians, children in Gaza is tearing terrible lacerations into the soul of Palestinians and everyone who cares about humanity anywhere. And both of those wounds will have to heal and that will take time. But you seem to be saying that you sometimes need these terrible moments to create progress. I'm not an advocate of them for that reason. No, I'm not but sometimes, hard, but do you have any reason to be optimistic that, that that might happen out of this. You know, oddly, I do feel strongly that the two-state solution was widely regarded as something that was never going to happen um, before this. And I think that, you know, Netanyahu's aim was, it's much too simplistic to say that he was encouraging Hamas. It's not really true. He allowed Arab money from Qatar to go to Hamas to maintain their repressive rule. And it's wrong to blame him for what happened. That is a sort of moral equivalence that we, we must avoid. On the other hand, his plan was undoubtedly a bad one, which was to maintain Hamas and to deplete, undermine and degrade the Palestinian Authority, which should be and must be the Western and Israeli partner in making peace. Now, what was going to happen just before the 7th of October was Saudi Arabia and Israel were going to come to some sort of agreement which would have seen the Saudis reinvigorating, with both, not just with money, but with political dynamism, the Palestinian Authority. And that's what we need to make peace. Let me now try.
transition as we come to the end. You've been very patient with covering a lot of ground. But when you look at Russia, Ukraine, do you feel resonances in the way that you talked about two historical narratives mm. and you talked about the complexity of what happened 100 years ago or 300 years ago, 500 years ago and lives today? Apply that to how Russians view Ukraine, how Ukrainians view Russia. There are similarities because just as Israelis and Palestinians have an interwoven shared history often living together happily for centuries and other times at war and promoting rival histories and narratives, both of which must be recognised. It is similar. And remind us what the Russian narrative about Ukraine is, the extreme Russian nationalist narrative, and what the extreme Ukrainian narrative is. Well, the Russian narrative is that over a thousand years since the conversion in the 10th century of Vladimir the Great, um, who was who was um, baptized uh, under the aegis of Basil the Bulgar Slayer, Emperor of the Eastern you, you Roman like all Empire? These names. Yes, the Grim I the do. Bulgar Slayer, the Grim yeah. of the better. Um, and so they believe that since then, um, Russia and Ukraine have shared a Slavophile Russian history, and that Kievian Rus, Vladimir the Great's principality, was essentially a pre-Russian entity, and that ever since then, Ukraine has been a sort of minor sub-Russian culture, um, not an independent one, not a separate state, not a separate language, but part of Russia. And that since the 18th century, when Peter the Great and Catherine and Potemkin annexed it, it has been little Russia or new Russia, but Russia, and has not existed as a, as a separate culture, nation state. The Ukrainian view is that over many centuries, the Ukraine, Ukrainian language developed um, as a separate language to the related relation to Russia, um, that since the 17th century, there have been Ukrainian pre-states like Klemnitsky's, for example, Klemnitsky's Hetmanate in the 1640s. But that in the 19th century, a, a national conscious, a sort of new nationalism, a Ukrainian nationalism began to develop, as did in, the, in our other part of the world we're looking at in the 19th century, a Jewish nationalism and an Arab nationalism both began to develop in the late 19th century. Same thing happened in Ukraine. And um, Rus the Russian Romanov Tsars, people like Nicholas I, Alexander II, repressed that, banned the language. In 1918, Ukraine declared its independence from the Russian Empire. And again, here's a little parallel, just because this is the moment, again, where Balfour declarations are happening, where self-determination for peoples is spreading, where the League of Nations and Wilson is trying to get behind Armenian self-determination and Kurdish that states. Is, that's and exactly the point. The point is that you know the creation of, of Jewish nationalism in the 1890s is not in any way recent and exceptional in the creation of nation states in the 19th and 20th centuries. It's completely typical. You know, it started with Greece in the 1820s. In World War II, Britain and France offered exactly, as Rory says, offered you know, nation states to the Armenians, the Kurds, the Jews, the Arabs, and others. Not all of them happened. So, uh, first of all, Ukraine declares independence. Yeah. Lenin and Stalin seize power. The Bolshevik party seizes power in Russia. And essentially, they realize that in their view, even though they are um, communists, Marxists, they believe, and they are liberating the prison of nations, they believe that Ukraine is essential to the Russian state. Even though they are supposedly anti-imperialist, they are also imperialist. And all of this necessitates having more than one idea in your head at the same time, just as we have to with Israel and Palestine. And so they retake it and they, they include it in a union of Soviet socialist republics. 
which is a very clever creation. It's a sort of empire that says it isn't an empire. It's a bit like Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And so it's only by a historical accident in 1991 that the Soviet Union breaks up and all the republics become independent and Ukraine finally achieves the independence the Ukrainian people have always aspired to. Now, I've, I've never met Zelensky, but I have met Putin a few times. And I do remember Putin constantly making historical references and allusions. At a web point, I also remember our interpreter, this amazing guy called Tony Bishop, saying after some of these meetings, you know, when he said such and such, it wasn't. He got that wrong. It was this, it was that. He, so maybe he was using his own assessment of history. First of all, what's your sense of that? Putin and his knowledge of, reliance upon, and calling upon as a political force great figures in history. I'm sure he's very pissed off that there's already been a Vladimir the Great. Yes. Because that is clearly what he wants to be seen as. He, he definitely does. I mean, he, he aspires to channel both the czar, great czars like sort of Peter the Great and also, and Prince Potemkin and, and also Stalin, you know, the victor of 1945. He wants to be both those things. History is one of those propulsive powers that people believe has a legitimacy to justify any, and politicians believe, to justify political events in in the present. So would he look at Stalin as a net positive? He would look at Stalin as a net positive. And in fact, he is now fostering textbooks that say that Stalin was a pretty good manager of Russia. And I remember this a great, we're, we're coming towards the end and we could keep going forever. This is wonderful, but maybe we should have you back at some point. Love but, the, to. but I remember you uh, writing, I think, that um, when you produced your book on Catherine the Great and her great general Potemkin, uh, it was celebrated and Putin enjoyed the book and George Bush read it to his wife. But as soon as you started writing a book on Stalin, you suddenly found that you were not welcomed as much in Moscow. That's right. That's right. I mean, what happened was I wrote The Catherine the Great and Potemkin, which is the story of this amazing romantic partnership. They were lovers. They're, it was the first, my first. Did, did you think book. you overdid the sex scenes a bit? No. No, because oh, okay. the great thing about the great thing about <laughs> the great thing about the sex scenes on you know with Catherine the Great and Potemkin is unlike the Daily Mail today, they are based on their love letters, a thousand over a thousand of which exist. And so we know exactly how they talk to each other. And the great thing about them was not only did they have an uninhibitedly passionate sex life, but they also spent the other, the other part of their time talking endlessly about politics, art, culture, and their hemorrhoids, which everybody in the 18th century talks about all the time if you read their letters. But when that book appeared, I was approached by the new administration, the new presidency in the Kremlin, where there was a young, hopeful, reforming liberal who was admired by George W. Bush and Tony Blair as, as a hope for the future, Vladimir Putin. And I was told by them that the Minister of Culture approached me and said that he, he really admires that book, but he can't read it because it's in English. Can you, can you write us an essay about how Catherine the Great and Potemkin took Ukraine and Crimea in 1783 to 91, which I did. And then I was approached again and they said, it's been translated into Russian. A certain personage has read the book and would like to give you a present. And the present, well, I was slightly alarmed about taking a present from Vladimir Putin. But the present was access well, in case to it was Novichok. In case it was Novichok, but the but the actual present was: Would you like to? We're about to open Stalin's private archives. Would you like to work on it? So that's as Rory says. That's that's how I wrote my my, my wow. biography of Stalin. Stalin, the court of the Red Tsar. But when it came out, they all hated it, and it showed Stalin because again, all Stalin's letters <laughs> didn't show Stalin in a great light. Didn't show Stalin <laughs> in a great light, and so I was then exiled from fa the favor of the Kremlin where I remain. And what does history tell us 
about how the current situation between Russia and Ukraine might end. I mean, I believe that obviously it could end with a, with a Ukrainian victory, which would achieve um, the Ukrainian borders as roughly as they are meant to, meant to be. And Russian defeat would bring about, I believe, the fall of Putin and the fall of Putinism, the sort of ultra-nationalist, re- repressive autocracy. Which is why he feels he has to win. Which is why he feels he has to win now. Um, more likely, though, given the fact that we are we're still withholding some high-tech weaponry from Ukraine, is that there'll be some sort of stalemate, which brings us back to the other subject, because that would be armistice line signed, which would create a Ukraine that rather like happened with India and Pakistan after partition and therefore wars, rather like happened with, Ar- with the Arab states and Israel after 48, would create borders that would be recognized. There would be periodic wars in the future, but Ukraine could develop as a pro-Western EU member. And in that sense, it would be not unlike Israel, which brings us full circle. Now, my final question, if I can, when we were researching ahead of this interview, I was intrigued to discover that whilst you were at what I think Rory considers to be the country's second best school, Harrow, (laughs) that you interviewed Margaret Thatcher. I did. So do you have any memory of that? And and what do you think, were she sitting on the, the shoulder of the current British Prime Minister, or dare I say the next one, what do you think she would be saying about what Britain could do in this, in both of the two contexts that we've talked about? Well, first of all, it was an amazing experience. I was 17. I wrote to Downing Street as a sort of Harrow schoolboy and said, could I come and interview you? And I never expected to hear any more of it. But when the letter arrived saying like, please present yourself, I had to go and buy a suit. And, you know, because I was a slight, and I was at the time I regarded myself as a sort of Trotskyite. So I was very keen to, you know, to put her in her place <laughs> as a, as a completely um, uh, infantile teenager. And so I went to see her and she was actually extremely nice to me. I went with me and the deputy editor of the school magazine. We went together and we had an amazing conversation. And I did accuse her of all sorts of terrible things like, had she used the Falklands War purely to promote herself as prime minister and so on and so forth, which of course brought an intake of breath from her sort of private secretaries. And when I left, she did say, no more schoolboys. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so, so I was the last schoolboy interview. Have you still got gave. the piece that you wrote? I've still got the piece oh, I I'd wrote. I'd love to see it. Um, but well, what happened was one of the deals was that I would write a piece about it and she would be allowed to censor it um, herself. And so we sent her the, well, the um, quotes or what you said, not the quotes, because that was they were recorded. But the but my my commentary, oh my lord, on, um, which which um, so which, you saw you were back in Stalin's Russia. So I finished up the last lines of the piece were I leant against the famous black door of Ten Downing Street with the relief that a prisoner feels when they're released from the torture chambers of the Great Khan. <laughs> and when, when we got the proofs back, it was in the days of when we got the proofs back, all of the article was fine. And then it just had a red line through that. And it just said in the margin, it just said, no, in a, in a Margaret Thatcher voice. Um, well, thank you so much. There's so much more to talk about, but we really, really appreciate having you on. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Does it seem like countries are not working together anymore? The United States, some European societies, are so divided. And that we lurch from one crisis to the next without any coherent vision from our leaders. There is this big space of disorder, and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. If so, disorder. 
Co-produced by Gullhanger is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, we bring together some of the world's leading thinkers to unpack our new era of global enduring disorder. And we move beyond the headlines to actually propose solutions out of this mess in our Ordering the Disorder segment. How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder in your podcast app to listen right now.